Chapter Three of the Golden Silence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Silence by Alice Muriel and Charles Norris Williamson. Chapter Three. Stephen had meant to stop only one day in Paris and travel at night to Marseilles where he would have twelve or fifteen hours to wait before the sailing of the ship on which he had engaged a cabin. But glancing over a French paper, while he breakfasted at the Winstminster, he saw that a slight accident had happened to the boat during a storm on her return voyage from Algiers, and that she would be delayed three days for repairs. This news made Stephen decide to remain in Paris for those days rather than go on and wait at Marseilles or take another ship. He did not want to see anyone he knew, but he thought it would be pleasant to spend some hours picture-gazing at the Louvre and doing a few other things which one ought to do in Paris and seldom does. That night he went to bed early and slept better than he had slept for weeks. The next day he almost enjoyed, and when evening came felt desultory, even light-hearted. Dining at his hotel, he overheard the people at the next table say they were going to the Follies Bergeres to see Victoria Ray dance, and suddenly Stephen made up his mind that he would go there too, for if life had been running its usual course with him, he would certainly have gone to see Victoria Ray in London. She had danced lately at the Palace Theatre for a month or six weeks, and absorbed as he had been in his own affairs, he had heard enough talk about this new dancer to know that she had made what is called a sensation. The people at the next table were telling each other that Victoria Ray's Paris engagement was only for three nights, something special with huge pay, and that there was a regular scramble for seats, as the girl had been such a success in New York and London. The speakers, who were English and provincial, had already taken places, but there did not appear to be much hope that Stephen could get anything at the last minute. The little spice of difficulty gave a fillip of interest, however, and he remembered how the charming child on the boat had said that she liked doing difficult things. He wondered what she was doing now, and as he thought of her, white and ethereal in the night and in the dawnlight, she seemed to him like the foam flowers that had blossomed for an instant on the crests of the dark waves through which their vessel forged. For a moment white then gone forever. The words glittered in his mind and fascinated him, calling up the image of the girl, pale against the night and rainy sea. For a moment white, then gone forever, he repeated, and asked himself whence came the line. From Burns, he fancied, and thought it quaintly appropriate to the fair child, whose clear whiteness had thrown a gleam into his life before she vanished. All the seats for this second night of Victoria Ray's short engagement were sold at the Follies Bergeres, he found from the dearest to the cheapest. But there was standing room still when Stephen arrived, and he squeezed himself in among a group of light-hearted, long-haired students from the Latin Quarter. He had an hour to wait before Victoria Ray would dance, but there was some clever conjuring to be seen a famous singer of chansons to be heard, and other performances which made the time pass well enough. Then, at last, it was the new dancer's turn. 
The curtain remained down for several minutes, as some scenic preparation was necessary before her first dance. Gay French music was playing, and people chattered through it or laughed in high Parisian voices. A blue haze of smoke hung suspended like a thin veil, and the air was close, scented with tobacco and perfume. Stephen looked at his program, beginning to feel bored. His elbows were pressed against his sides by the crowd. Miss Ray was down for two dances, the dance of the statue and the dance of the shadow. The atmosphere of the place depressed him. He doubted, after all, that he would care for the dancing. But as he began to wish he had not come, the curtain went up to show the studio of a sculptor, empty save for the artist's marble masterpieces. Through a large skylight and a high window at the back of the stage, a red glow of sunset streamed into the bare room. In the shadowy corners marble forms were grouped, but in the center, directly under the full flood of rose-colored light, the just-finished statue of a girl stood on a raised platform. She was looking up, and held a cup in one lifted hand, as if to catch the red wine of sunset. Her draperies, confined by a grip ceinture under the young bust, fell from shoulder to foot in long clear lines that seemed cut in gleaming stone. The illusion was perfect. Even in the ruddy blaze the delicate draped form appeared to be of carved marble. It was almost impossible to believe it that of a living woman and its grace of outline and pose was so perfect that Stephen, in his love of beauty, dreaded the first movement, which must change, if not break, the tableau. He said to himself that there was some faint resemblance between this chiseled loveliness and the vivid charm of the pretty child he had met on the boat. He could imagine that a statue for which she had stood as model might look like this, though the features seemed to his eye more regular than those of the girl. As he gazed, the music, which had been rich and colorful, fell into softer notes, and the rose sunset faded to an opal twilight, purple to blue, blue to the silver of moonlight, the music changing as the light changed, until at last it was low and slumberous as the drip, drip of a plashing fountain. Then into the dream of the music broke a sound like the distant striking of a clock. It was midnight, and all the statues in the sculptor's bare white studio began to wake at the magic stroke which granted them a few hours of life. There was just a shimmer of movement in the dim corners. Marble limbs stirred, marble face turned slowly to gaze at marble face, and yet as if they could be only half awakened in the shadows where the life-giving draught of moonlight might not flow, there was but the faintest flicker of white forms and draperies. It was the just-finished statue of the girl which felt the full thrill of moonshine and midnight. She woke rapturously and drained the silver moon wine in her cup. The music told the story of her first thought and living heartbeat and then down she stepped from the platform where the sculptor's tool still lay and began to dance for the other statues who watched in the dusk hushed back into stillness under the new spell of her enchantments stephen 
had never seen anything like that dance. Many pretty premieres danseuses he had admired and applauded, charming and clever young women of France, of Russia, of Italy, and Spain, and they had roused him and all London to enthusiasm over dances eccentric, original, exquisite, or wild. But never had there been anything like this. Stephen had not known that a dance could move him as this did. He was roused, even thrilled, by its poetry, and the perfect beauty of its poses, its poises, it must, he supposed, have been practiced patiently, perhaps for years, and yet it produced the effect of being entirely unstudied. At all events, there was nothing in the ordinary sense professional about it. One would say, not knowing the supreme art of supreme grace, that a joyous child, born to the heritage of natural grace, might dance thus, by sheer inspiration, in ecstasy of life and worship of the newly found beauty of earth. Stephen did know something of art, and the need of devotion to its study, and yet he found it hard to realize that this awakened marble loveliness had gone through the same performance, week after week, month after month, in America and England. He preferred rather to let himself fancy that he was dreaming the whole thing, and he would gladly have dreamed on indefinitely, forgetting the smoky atmosphere, forgetting the long-haired students and all the incongruous surroundings. The gracious dream gave him peace and pleasure, such as he had not known since the beginning of the Northmoreland case. Through the house there was a hush. Unusual at the Follies Bergeres, people hardly knew what to make of the dances, so different from any ever seen in a theatre of Paris. Stephen was not alone in feeling the curious dream-spell woven by the music and perfection of beauty. But the light changed. The moonlight slowly faded. Dancer and music faltered. In the falling of the dark hour before dawn, the charm was waning. Soft notes died and quavered in apprehension. The magic charm of the moon was breaking, had broken, a crash of cymbals, and the studio was dark. Then light began to glimmer once more. But it was the chill light of dawn, and growing from purple to blue, from blue to rosy day. It showed the marble statues fast locked in marble sleep again. On the platform stood the girl with uplifted arm, holding her cup now to catch the wine of sunrise. And on the delicately chiseled face was a faint smile which seemed to hide a secret. When the first ray of yellow sunshine gilded the big skylight, a door upstage opened, and the sculptor came in, wearing his workman's blouse. He regarded his handiwork as the curtain came down. When the music of the dream had ceased, and suddenly became ostentatiously puerile, the audience broke into a tumult of applause. Women clapped their hands furiously, and many men shouted, Brava! Brava! hoping that the curtain might rise once more on the picture. But it did not rise, and Stephen was glad. The dream would have been vulgarized by repetition. For fully five minutes the orchestra played some gay tune which everyone there had heard a hundred times, but abruptly it stopped, as if on a signal. 
For an instant there was a silence of waiting and suspense, which roused interest and piqued curiosity. Then there began a delicate symphony, which could mean nothing but spring in a forest, and on that the curtain went up. The prophecy of the music was fulfilled, for the scene was a woodland in April, with young leaves a flicker and blossoms in birth, the light song of the flutes and violins being the song of birds in love. All the trees were brocaded with dainty gold-green lace, and daffodils sprouted from the moss at their feet. The birds sang more gaily, and out from behind a silver-trunked beech tree danced a figure in spring green. Her arms were full of flowers, which she scattered as she danced, curtsying, mocking, beckoning the shadow that followed her along the daisied grass. Her little feet were bare, and flitted through the green folding of her draperies like white night-moths fluttering among rose-leaves. Her hair fell over her shoulders and curled below her waist. It was red hair that glittered and waved, and she looked a radiant child of sixteen. Victoria Ray, the dancer, and the girl on the channel boat were one. End of chapter 3